Welcome to the Old Chats Pod with me, Amesha here. And me, James Factor. This podcast will tackle the taboo topic of mental health in a raw, honest and jovial way. With two good mates who've met in London talking about their own mental health hiccups with some help from some special guests along the way. Welcome to episode 21. This is the Actor Chat. Here we speak to Joe Layton about following his dream of acting, the appearance versus reality of Hollywood, and how he learned to improve his mental health with coping mechanisms for auditions. Doctor. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. How have you been anywhere ever since stuff opened up? I've been good. Been going out a reasonable amount, I think. Just seeing more friends now. Yeah, what about you? Yeah, so I was kind of doing it at my own pace, like doing it at my own pace, seeing people as and when, kind of on my terms rather than something that you do, don't do previously is like you don't, you, you say yes to yeah. everything, don't you? That was supposed to be, it's supposed to be the mantra, wasn't it? The new mantra was say yes to everything. But now it's got here. Yeah. It's just like, actually, there's a, there's a reason, there's a good reason why I didn't say yes to everything pre-lockdown. Yeah, so true. And it's still, it's still applicable to post-lockdown as well. So, yeah. It's good to see everyone, like obviously being back in rugby, it's just, I don't know, like, I wouldn't say I've got loads of, like, locked-up banner, locked-up chat, but just because you don't see many people, it's like, it's that little excitement, isn't it, of, like, seeing everyone? And you know, Joe, Joe reminded me of the other day, it was like, do you know, after the summer holidays at school, when you maybe haven't seen, you yeah. maybe haven't seen, obviously you see your close mates, but you see those people who you're mates with, but yeah. you're not going to go out of the way to see, like, I don't know, like, that sort of thing. And this is what you yeah. reminds me of, is, like, seeing yeah. everyone being like, oh, how's your summer holiday? Like, yeah. It's really the Saturdays we've had so far have been really oh, good. Yeah, isn't it? You're always buzz, buzzing around, catching up. But everyone's just so happy. Even like the the minimal conversations I've had with like strangers when I've been out, like everyone's just so much more friendly and like yeah. more about to speak rather than before. Yeah, it's still a long way to. I think that's the the nice thing is that it's kind of easing into it, and it's just going to get more and more, isn't it? So we were coming back from a friend's house. So yesterday, the friends I was telling you about, we. Me and my other friend were cut. It got to about eleven thirty, I think, and we thought, "Oh yeah, Lena, let's go out. Let's try and go out somewhere else as well and see." It just got carried away that we felt it felt like it was normal again, and then you realise everything's actually shut by midnight still. So it's still a long way. You kind of push it to the boundary, and then you're like, uh, "This is where it's at still." And then just yeah, going to keep going. That moment of realization for the best, though. I think it's coincided with my thirties. Well, I think. <laughs> oh mate, we still need you. Still need to have your thirties birthday party. Hey, hopefully this September do a double double whammy do a double whammy yeah 100% we'll organise it stuff's good now but I think the positive things it's just going to get better touch wood hopefully like especially yeah. in the UK but we'll wait and see I thought you might have tried to get yourself a ticket to uh, the first rave trial that they're doing in Liverpool oh no I saw that yeah, yeah. god that, look, that looks great though like obviously it's all done because it's a government scheme, it like think it's all done, trim and proper. But yeah, first one back Friday and a Saturday. That's meant that is chaos. Hopefully, we fans back for the last couple of games of football as well. So stuff's just getting better. Yeah. So there's been a lot of discussion with sports people at the moment about the social media blackout, and it's getting quite a lot of traction with with stars. Uh, what's your take on it? Is it going to work? It's good that sport are beginning to use their their power to inflict like good onto the world, put it that way. But obviously the European Super League, like that got disbanded pretty early doors. That was great from like people power. And also like this, yeah, the social media blackout. Like, it's great we're having these conversations, but things have got to happen. All these things are great, but just actions speak louder than words, don't they? Like I don't know if you saw, it was on Football Focus yesterday where Ian Wright and Alan Shearer, it's on BBC Sport website, they, they like, basically Ian Wright talks about the messages he gets and he just gets gets them on the daily message to share it to Alan Shearer mate and yeah, some of this stuff is saying that, yeah. word, like using it all the time and Ian writes like the worst thing he can do is like he can't reply to them because that's what they want but they'll they'll just keep messaging him and it's like and he then Alan Shearer's like why'd you report it and he was like yeah I would but nothing happens because he's I think last time he reported him it was like some young Irish teenager and like he was got put to court didn't get put into prison and then the next, the next round of abuse right he gets was, oh, why are you letting this little kid get into prison, blah, blah, blah. Then he's like, oh, ha, 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 who's, who's like not guilty, like didn't get to prison. But 
he says it's not it's not asking you don't want to fill the prisons of these people it's an education thing no that, yeah exactly yeah it's like prodding the hornet's nest isn't it if you reply that's the shit a lot of the people doing it are like teenagers who maybe don't like they're still like they haven't had an experience of being with different races or whatever or um different sexualities but yeah i think yeah like I said, it's good it's doing but i don't know if it's something needs to happen off the back of it i always you think um i don't if that's that's the goal i think isn't it is that if enough of the big stars do it um and not just not just sport but all around the world if if the major people who have massive followings get off twitter then twitter has a big problem to deal with and at the moment they haven't had to deal with the issues of registering you know people to accounts and id um and getting them in a place where they can actually track track them down because if you said any of the comments on twitter That's in the true. street you'd be arrested by by passers by and reported so it's it's mad that it actually has been allowed to go on for so long that you don't have any, you have don't have to show who you are you can create as many accounts as you want yeah. and just post this hate basically so it's only going to I think that's the aim isn't it the only, it's only going to work though if, if it gets enough traction and I think it might because I think people have to know it's you get some good insightful stuff from Twitter as well and it's good to keep up to date on a lot of things but um, it's just full of um, these comments as well isn't it so I, I hope it yeah no, I hope it does lead to um, Twitter listening and and making plans to either spot you know through the algorithms or something to spot these messages and flag them and link them back to people and either get them chucked off or even worse you know you link them to their id and they can face charges directly because of it but at the moment it's just it's just wild west country it's not what you said like it doesn't happen in person because of that accountability like there's that rules there if someone says it like obviously you've got evidence people can like know it's you but then on the social media platforms you don't know who's behind that that emerging yeah. so yeah that's yeah. that's that's what social media platforms yeah they have, they have, have they've got no incentive to do that at the moment because i'm sure it costs you know cost them a lot and they'll lose followers because um you know people won't be able to post their their racism yeah. anymore so they'll get off but you know you don't that's the whole point is you want to get it to be a safer place for people to go on and they do it for other they do it for all kinds of things as well don't they you have on Facebook, you have people whose job it is to go through content and and weed out other kinds of harmful messaging. Um, and I, you know, Twitter, I don't know why it hasn't been happening so far with with messages of, of racism and abuse like that as well. I, I mean, I spoke to my uh, my uncle actually, Uncle Mark. He's he's been on this oh, podcast. No. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he? yeah, he's good. He's good. Where he was um, saw him a couple of weeks ago and had this kind of discussion about it as well. And, you know, obviously in, in a utopian world, in the best world, you wouldn't have to do this. You know, you, 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 like you talk about the education side of it. I think that's, that goes along as well in the background and that, that that's going to take time. You know, you can't just do, you have to address the problem that's here now. And so you can't just say stuff like, oh, well, you know, it's not, you're, you're, yeah. you're trying to attack the um, the problem rather than, create the solution but that's just not it's just not an argument for how quickly this moves and how quickly this text come into the world and we're still grappling with how to moderate it properly and this is just the next stage in that and we just got to be quicker at doing it for for the next thing and keeping tabs on it and you can't just say let's wait till we're in a perfect society to you know allow people to say what they want yeah mate agreed so I'm going to pretend I'm not reading off his IMDb, but we have a man here who I'd like to regard as a future James Bond, but he is featured in things such as Tatao and 13 on BBC, Young Wallander on Netflix, and more recently, Marvel's Agents of the Shield and The Trouble with Maggie Cole with the wonderful Dawn French. I would like to welcome Joe Layton. Pleasure to be here, lads. Hi, Joe. How's it going? Yeah, it's good. I'm just, uh, I'm in Vilnius at the moment, shooting the second series of uh, Young Wallander. So it's always nice to to talk to people while doing a job because it makes you sound like you're working all the time. But uh, <laughs> as any actors will will know or anyone uh, who's good friends with actors, that's, that's not often the case for most of us. But here I am. So we went to school together, Joe, and obviously you were, you were head boy of our year and you're quite academically focused as well. And obviously you did a bit, you did a bit of acting at school, but 
Did you always want to be an actor or was it just, just kind of fall into it? Do you know what? It was, um, we had a couple of great teachers, um, Tony Johnson, who I know you know, Mash, obviously, um, was a real sort of, um, he really encouraged me to, to follow it. And also Sarah Ball as well in GCSE. So GCSE, there were a group of us who did an extra, extra GCSE at sort of lunch times and got involved with the National Youth Theatre and um, the West Yorkshire Playhouse and a, a theatre company called Frantic Assembly. We went on a school trip to see a show at the West Yorkshire Playhouse called Stockholm, which always will, I always say to people, it was my kind of like light bulb moment where I saw something for the first time that totally blew my mind and showed me something that I that I hadn't seen before and, um, and was kind of the moment for me where I was like, if I could do this, that would be amazing. So you had boy uh, doing academics, doing rugby and everything else with it. I would maybe imagine how, how did your parents feel when the acting became more than just kind of like a hobby at school and became your focus? I mean, I was really lucky with my, my mum's got a very sort of heavy arts background. I mean, she's an artist. So she was incredibly supportive. And, you know, I think my, my dad just, you know, wanted to see his kids happy and he could see that it was it was going to make me really happy and um you know if I if I was able to do it and uh, again Tony Johnson really um I think kind of reassured them so there was some parents evenings that I remember my mum came back from and she'd she sort of said to me you know Mr Johnson really sort of believes in you and assured me that he thought that you should really give it a give it a pop so Again, you know, everyone's got teachers that they love and teachers that they've got lots to thank those teachers for. And yeah, Mr. Johnson was that for me. When you were um, thinking of doing that as a, as a job and a future career path, when you were at that age, when you were applying for it, did you research it or did someone tell you just how hard that's going to be basically to, to really make it to maybe the level that you think? Because for those kind of dreams in like footballers as well, like, any a parent or teacher should really tell a 16, 17, 18 year old, you know, these chances will help you as much as we can, but these chances are, are small. I was, re- I was very lucky through school and then through drama school to be really encouraged and, and told that, you know, you're good at this. And if, if you want to do that, then you believe it. But it also creates quite a complex relationship to the validation of others and being told that, you know, you're destined for this or you're going to do this and you're going to do this. And uh, then when I graduated from drama school, I, I, I kind of jumped straight into work and I went and did this job tattoo in New Zealand where I was the, the lead in it. And, you know, you, you kind of don't look back. You, got, you pin your ears back and go for it. But then the question that comes in there is, you know, how long is that sustainable for? And in my case, that, that mindset was not sustainable and it and it led to led to some pe- pretty big peaks and troughs with it, um, which if you're going to do it for the for the long run, you have to learn how you're going to navigate that, and you know you have to learn to take compliments and um, you know positive critique as well as negative critique for what it is. Art and acting is so sort of subjective. Um, you have to just be really clear with yourself about why you're doing it and what you want from it and what you get from it. You know, as far as like a lot of the lads in school were concerned, when I was going off to London and then when I started booking big jobs, it was going to be like Entourage and we were all going to be living in LA and everyone was going to be driving Hummers and stuff, which, you know, it's good fun to kind of entertain and play around with. But like I say, it's not um, particularly sustainable with with the reality. As I've sort of reached the end of my... 20s and I've looked and I sort of especially with with COVID and stuff's given given time to reflect and you know the industry kind of shut down and it was the first time since I graduated that I had time to to reflect and look back on stuff without having a constant ticking of what's next what's next when's the next audition when's the next job coming because with, with everything shut I was able to switch off so this year has been good for that uh, and also I've just realized my question kind of implied that you haven't made it. Which of course, you, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying you have or you haven't. You're still, I forget that like you're you are age. So you've still got a long career ahead of you, but just by the nature, I don't know. How do you feel it's gone so far? Do you look back and think, oh, you know, I still love the job. And, you know, I've got, I could 
as well as around the corner, or do you second guess yourself sometimes? I think that it's really sort of a constant process of self analysis and evolution. And, you know, as you, as you move forward in any career, the goalposts change. So the yeah. thing that an older actor said to me, which I say to myself all the time is, and you know, again, this works for anything is ask yourself five years ago, you know, you're 25 years old and you say you will have done this, 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 and this, I would have chopped my leg off. Success is, is again, one of those interesting things is what do you, how do you define your own success? And how do I relate to what other people's opinion of a successful actor, a successful career is so it's an interesting question and one yeah. that I don't think I have a I think my answer is is it's something that I sort of question constantly and as long as you're constantly asking yourself the difficult questions you can stay sort of grounded and you know yourself really. yeah you said you said you're not an entourage we're not an entourage yet Joe not there yet that takes time mate well, that's for sure. I also don't know if I particularly want entourage. Obviously, you spent time in America. Tell us what your reality experience was of going to LA compared to what me and Factor are obviously going to think of what it's like. Our judgment. Oh, right. Okay. I'm thinking on top, I've, I've watched entourage and I'm just imagining that's the dream. I arrived in LA and we, we initially were just kind of going to see if we would like to live there. I'd had agent and manager out there and... Um, and I'd made a trip before, but when it's very different making a trip somewhere and, and living somewhere. And when we moved there, the reality was I was going through a green card process that took six months where I couldn't work. I didn't, I was 23, 20, 23, 24 years old, didn't have hardly any money. And certainly by the time I'd got my work permit, I didn't have a, I didn't have a penny in my bank account. So there was no glitz or glamour to it, but it's a place full of glitz and glamour. And it's also a place full of people trying to give off a persona that maybe they're not, you know, it's the fake it till you make it sort of mentality. And look, there were great things about living in LA and actually the, the best people that I met were the guys who I worked with on my side job there, which was working for this brilliant business called Recycled Movie Sets. And all the guys I worked with there, none of, none of them were actors. And um, they were just, it was just a group of people who I would never, never have met before in my life. So that was one of the best things I took from LA. I don't think I was particularly at ease with myself or where I was in my life when I was living in LA. I was in that kind of transition from, I'd done the job in New Zealand, I did 13, and then, and then moved out there on a real high and then had to wait six months to get a work permit. Booked Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which was amazing. Booked a couple of independent films. And then I got dropped by my, uh, by my agent, which was a massive, huge blow mentally. Um, was, that, was, that, was that a shock? Just to, did that just come out of the blue? Totally out of the blue. So we lived out there for, for two years and then I booked a play with Frantic Assembly, which was the theatre company I was telling, telling you about. And when that came in, it felt like a bit of a sort of sign to go and do that and reconnect with my, like my why of why I want to do this and what I'm about, because I think I'd lost, I think I'd lost that. I'd lost a, lost a spark and lost my confidence with it. And going back, coming back to the UK and doing the play was the best, was the best thing and best decision I've made work-wise and um, kind of haven't looked back from there really. Do you think maybe seeing that ugly side to the business when you were there kind of helped you appreciate what you then got when you came back to the UK? Yeah, I think it was probably like a coming of age thing as well. I didn't necessarily know fully what I was getting myself into. And then again, the other thing in, in LA is like, you know, there were lots of lots of British actors and friends coming to visit. And it's like I said, it's really different visiting a place to living in a place. You know, when I'd visited LA before, I was going over with money, with an Airbnb booked, didn't need a job, going out for dinner, going to my castings, and I was I was just there to to work and and meet people. Whereas living, when you're grinding to pay your rent every month, and then when people were coming in, I was trying to keep up this facade of keep up. You know that everything's good, everything's 
everything's sort of positive. And and I mean, I to be honest with you, I was in, I, I was pretty depressed by the time I'd spent two years in LA. Missed my family a lot. Missed my friends and um and felt very disconnected from from who I was really. Obviously, it's a very unique environment. It's very volatile, but. You say fake it till you make it. Like you're going to act. Like you're going to put on a show. You, you you're not. The vast majority of times, your character or your character might not be you. Like it might not be what you do. Your personality values. And if you're coming home, like and you're not in that good headspace, it's just going to be a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Like you can't. You've got to, like it's it's so tough to do what you do because you have to fake it till you make it when you go to auditions. If you're not in a good headspace. If you don't have the confidence, don't have anything like that. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think com- confidence and um, confidence from me comes from me being at home and at ease with myself. And um, so, if you're not at ease with yourself or at ease with where you're at in your life, then it's like trying to. I mean, it's flogging a dead horse. Yeah, of course. And I wasn't being kind to myself either, which links in with what I was saying about you know going from being told you're going to do it, you know you're destined for to, to be in movies and, and film and TV to then the reality of that not happening and it not happening for me in LA. I put that on myself. Of course. And it was, a, and it was quite a, and it, that was like a heavy, heavy load to sort of bear and carry. So I think that, yes, you know, obviously the characters you play don't represent who you are, but they all come from you. Yeah, true. And, and in order to to be open to becoming these other people, whether they're real or or fictional, coming at it from a place of ease and openness and a non-judgmental place, you have to be all of those things to yourself as well. And um, and that's kind of what I've been working on specifically over the over the last couple of years. But that's interesting because there's I think a conception of actors that actually some of them because they became actors to get away from themselves in some cases and, and that they, you know, that they method act, they immerse themselves so much into these other people like Daniel Day-Lewis. I, I don't know, you know, how comfortable I want to, you know, put words in his mouth, but if you're going to that level to get into someone else's head and space. I don't know. Do you, where, do you think that comes from a place of love of the self? And then they go out to search for these, or do you think it can be a toxic relationship with the best actors? I mean, there's, there's, there's no doubt that there are examples where it, it comes from a place of sort of toxicity, um, but would equally argue that there are loads of actors who, who would take on, you know, method acting or whether it be method acting or, you know, transformative work um, or what, you know, whatever technique people use are coming are able to do that you don't you don't need to put yourself you don't need to damage yourself in order to create the art but but of course you know there are countless examples where people haven't been able to do that and i think that also links into into fame as well especially with social media now and every single thing that any celebrity or person of fame does is so highly scrutinized for me, you can't really live as a yeah. as the three of us would live. You can't live a normal life. Yeah, so true. It's like me, in fact, I've talked about before on other podcasts where if you're not in a good headspace as well, you're not going to do like the greatest work. Like I spoke before, like when I was at probably my lowest, I was like, I was going to work and just going through the motions. And obviously you go through the motions as an actor, mm-hmm. people are going to talk. They'll be like, if sort of say if you get recommended to an audition obviously you don't do an audition they'll just be like why do you recommend joe Lane to me like you literally got not the cliche but you have that one shot and it's like the first impression i mean you can tell when anyone walks in in the room yeah. in any environment bs like you say in an audition if you walk in the room and you're not in the right headspace it reads immediately uh because the audition starts when you when you walk in the room it doesn't start when they no, press record yeah. on the camera uh because they're hiring the person to to go and do the job for three months or six months or so yeah you're totally right i mean confidence and and ease with yourself shows and if you're not in the right headspace then a casting director or a director is going to say then they're not the they're not the guy or they're not the girl for this 
did you know you were going through that at the time or has it just come when you look back on it now so when you were going into those rooms were you thinking um oh, i'm not going to get this one it's going to in a cycle or did that come up at time i mean actors and the industry talk about needing to have a thick skin because you're basically told no over and over again with very little feedback on something that you've you've poured yourself into because you have to invest and it costs you every time that you do an audition so then to just get told you know they've gone a different direction or it's not going any further and that's it you you have to just forget about it and move on but obviously if you're in a negative cycle that is not good for your mental health or your headspace at all but the I think the corner I've turned on it in this last year with with the pandemic is I realized I was getting my auditions through and I was kind I wasn't I was kind of going through the motions on them like you say James with the the voice in your head saying yeah. you're never gonna fucking book this it's not you're not gonna be the guy I mean I'll try and it and it and it showed in my tapes when I when I look back on those tapes now so I took the time when I realized that I was like, you've got some big questions to ask here. Like, do you want to, do you want to do it? Or is this, is this it? And, you know, I worked out that I do really want to, I do really want to do it. And, and I think that, I think that it is there. So what, so the work that I did was me reconnecting to the craft of the acting and the doing of the acting, which is, you know, why I loved it in the first place. And now I've, you know, I've been going through sort of coaching and classes again, which, you know, I think is really, it's important in any career to stay engaged with the way things progress and how your relationship to whatever it is you're doing evolves. But now I feel like I'm on a journey with it. And when auditions come in or jobs come in, they meet me while I'm in motion. So I'm taking them in my stride as opposed to it being this kind of get the email, learn the lines, do the work on it, tape it, send it off, no, repeat. Because that was the cycle that I was in and um, and was kind of really grinding me down. Whereas now I feel like um, there's a kind of serenity to it and a, a, yeah, an ease to it, which which feels really nice. It's your inner, it's your inner critic, isn't it, Joe? Like you, the voice in your head, the inner critic, now you're more aware of it. You know that how to manage it and be like, yeah. I'm not going to get that. I'm not going to let that voice in my head get in the way of this next role. The other thing about the auditions is as soon as you say, I need this job, I need that paycheck, I need that stepping stone to move me up, rung up the ladder, it's not going to happen. As soon as you just say, do you know what? I'm okay with it not being for me. I'm really, really privileged and lucky to audition for some fantastic stuff. And now when I get one of those auditions through, it's a joy reading a good script and working on it and sending it off. And, you know, I've spent a long time when I get breakdowns through, I would look at the director and look at the producers and I look at the casting director and I would start to second guess what is it that James and Amesh are going to want to see? What are they going to want to hear from me on this podcast that's going to fit what they, you know, their niche or their product? And actually, as soon as you can say, you know, I'm going to be myself and this is this is Joe's interpretation of the character on this read, then, you know, you can you can have ownership of that. And and, you know, obviously you want the job, but if that's not right for them, then you've got no there's no nagging voice in your head saying, oh, what if I'd done it that yeah. way? Yeah, this must be easier to take the rejection that way, because if you're faking it and then you get the rejection, you then second guess like what why am i doing that exactly exactly the what if comes in and the yeah so yeah i think authenticity to yourself you can obviously only do that if you've done the work to find out who you are right? find that side of it really interesting that you were talking about earlier with committing to become a point i guess for you it came you know after la when you thought even through this i'm still going to do this you know but and when you're younger there's always that um, there's opportunity to do something else. So it must be really hard as much as you love something and it, it's your identity starts to develop around that. You're aware that start, you know, as, as just with any walk of life, it starts to harden and you cocoon yourself in it and you, you feel it 
closing and you think is this actually what i want to be in, in anything like i've had these thoughts mm-hmm. in long time now you know it's it's publishing or whatever do i want that to be what i'm about and if not you know have a look at these other things and i think you get i don't think if those voices go away or not maybe they won't but they're not as loud as they were when you're younger and i guess for, you know and acting especially must have been so hard to just silence that that time because it's so easy to go home and so yeah I'm incredibly lucky and I've, I've got great friends, great family. I've got a, a, an amazing partner. You know, I've, I feel like I've already won in a, a everything. So a, anything else for me from this point is just a, it's just a bonus. And what a, what a privileged position to sort of sit in and be able to say that. That was a real kind of light bulb for me. I think, you know, it's easy to get consumed by sort of ego or entitlement or you know it's very you know you can get very one tracked and insular in these kind of negative thoughts around a pursuit of a, a, a destination or and as soon as you can as soon as you can let yourself go let that let that idea that sort of notion or structure construct of happiness go you'll be happier for letting yeah. it go and that's what i mean Mesh and i've spoken that's exactly it. a moment where you realize that whatever the thing was you were going on wasn't going to really make you happy at all and 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 you change it but it's yeah it's funny because acting is almost the most overt version of that you can get like other people it, it is the yeah. embodiment of that process isn't it i guess because people see it from outside and think are oh, you an actor oh okay what are you what have you done why are you doing this more than any other thing else you're totally right. That's the, that, you know, that's another really interesting thing, which again links back to sort of the validation of others and being able to take compliments and critique. But as long as you know what your path is and you know who you are, you can, you know, very politely accept the compliments and, but don't let them define you or, you know, sway the way you think about something or who you are. Another thing, another, another actor, good friend said to me, soon as you can replace ego and entitlement with imagination and empathy your existence in the world and not just acting is is you know it's like the it's another light yeah. bulb it's another switch flicking you know there's so many different ways to to make a, make a path through life and a journey through life just you know the last thing you want to do is whenever you are going to think fuck me, I wish I'd done that or, you know, should, you know, be questioning stuff. And for me, that that's linked a lot, a lot more this year in, in work into sort of being in the moment and not thinking about what's happening next or the past defining this moment, you know, accepting what's been and just taking them, taking it moment to moment and, and, re- and, and really being present in that moment with what you're doing at that moment in time. I think it's I think it's hard for I mean it was for me and and also for younger people that you know, I speak to in in rugby and work and things to really um, find the encouragement to stick at some of these things for the time that it it's due to happen because this because we all see so many ulterior lives to our own and because the, the end of the tunnel moment is so right for some people if they haven't done it you know they go through the dark patch and they bail out before they get through that moment Mm -hmm. and I just I just think that's starting to happen a lot more and you spoke about your moment that you had that light bulb Mesh has spoken about his and I've spoken about mine I don't think I've spoken to maybe a handful of people about about that moment and it's been the same reaction each time it's just been oh yeah I went through that you know I went through that do you do you see you know actors or, or other people in in your walk of life who you know might need that encouragement and do, do you notice it more or is it something that it's just I mean I, I mean I definitely could have could have done with coming to that realization earlier you know there's lo- lots of big conversations about mental health within acting and actors because you know not working is is really really tough 
and I mean, I've I, I found it tough at times, but I've also been incredibly lucky with the work that I've, that I have had. Um, and I know that, you know, majority of people would, would kill for the opportunities that I've been lucky enough to have. And I've spoken, I, yeah, I mean, I've definitely spoken about it before with other actors and people don't, again, it links to the, you know, I don't want to let people know that I'm really struggling with this because if you start struggling, if say I go to my family and I say I'm really struggling with it, then they're going to say, then Joe, you know, maybe it's the end of the line with the acting and you should think about doing something else. I don't, would, would they know? I don't think that's... That's the thing. I don't, would they? I don't know if they would. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, th I don't think that my family would. But there are definitely lots of, there are lots of aspects to the industry. And when I say the industry, I mean, I also mean like the industry of like trying to be an actor, and you know, and the and the and the downtime as well. That that I, I kind of perceive that friends and family like won't get this. Yeah. And um, not to say that they wouldn't, because, you know, again, speaking to you boys now, you all had similar experiences just through a different vehicle and a different kind of different journey. You know, every they're all at the end of the day, they're all human emotions and reactions to to, to situations that are really difficult. So, well, I mean, from the outside looking in, obviously you can agree or disagree it just seems like acting is quite an anxious profession like even pre the pandemic like you don't know when you don't know when your next bit of income's coming in it could be you could, and you don't know how big it's going to be it could be a one-week job it could be a five-month job like exactly. you're always like just very it won't be very good for my anxiety i think that's why i don't think i'll make it i'm sorry i'll always be able to get a job doing something is the other is my other thing you know and when the when my chips are out I'll be, you know, I'll step away from the table. But while I, what what other what other part time jobs have you done? Let me I worked in pubs. I've worked in uh, the job in LA was 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 a great job uh, doing the movie set stuff. Sold sausages and burgers at Borough Market. Another great job with a fantastic group of people. Uh, and then yeah, you know the the uh, the kind of restauranty stuff that all actors have done. And that all of that stuff just, you know, it gives it just adds to your your back catalogue of experience and the people you meet. And you know, when that breakdown comes through, you're like, oh, I know that guy. I know that person. And uh, you know, I think I just try and look at it as a journey that enriches enriches me rather than stresses me out, although it does fucking stress Enriches me. and stresses. In equal measure together yeah exactly yeah i just think a lot of stuff you mentioned as well Joe. i'm just about to finish the matthew mcconaughey book green lights and a lot of a lot of things he talks about which i highly recommend um a lot of things he talks about is like your mindset in the moment and obviously the books on the premise of the green lights it's all like the traffic light therapy so i kind of learned about this in therapy which it like blew my mind but so everyone's got like, you'll have moments in your life where you're going to be in the red, red category, amber, green. But basically those moments that you're in red, you've got to move as quick as possible into the green. And you obviously can't do that without going through amber. So like quick example, so say, say you lose your job, like that's, that's red. You're in red, like you're angry, you're frustrated, like you're probably tense. Um, you probably like lash out at people. You're probably not good to be around. The quickest way is like, so for example, you go to amber is you start applying for jobs. So like you're still, you're okay, but you're applying for jobs, you're doing something about it. Um, you might still be a bit tense, a bit fidgety, but you're, you're on the way. And then Green's obviously like getting a job, happiness, physical, but like the, the book's unbelievable. He talks about, obviously there's moments, he has loads of events like, like you have, like part-time jobs, traveling the world, where there were moments where they thought there were red lights, but then they soon became green lights in next to no time. Often through his actions as well. I listened to, the, I listened to him read it as an audio book. And- uh, oh his read is is amazing of it and there was so much stuff in that that that, that i related to and you're totally right it's about turning the red lights green and learning something about why is this why is it red at the moment and then what is it that makes it green yeah. and how do you 
how do you become more efficient at accepting that it's red and moving to a a channel or a lane that that is green? I thought his read is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I'm not surprised. But there's there's so many stories in there of his like own like mental health hiccups, his own like dips. And there's one moment where he has like I think his family's like strong Texan family, they're all like Christians. They um he goes to like see a monk in the desert. And he literally talks. He goes on a walk. Except it says in the book for like four and a half hours. Then he has this like spiritual renaissance, just like breaking down, like telling him about his life. Like it's not coming down from his nose. And the monk doesn't say anything for four hours um, until he pauses once. And then like, Mazakonik is a bit like, oh, I'm lost. Like, I don't know what to do in my life. Blah, blah. And then the monk replies, just saying, me too. And the, the, the point of that was like, yeah, it was a red light, but it was a green light I talked about. It. And he just goes to share that. The monk didn't have to say anything. He just needs someone to listen to. Exactly. Which we all need to, we all need to be better listeners. Like, we talk about the power of listening. Like, yeah. he just needs offloads, no judgments. But... And the value in the value in offloading and, and speak, you know, it's right. exactly what you what you just sort of articulated and what what Matthew McConaughey does in the book. As soon as you, as soon as you air it, you, you know, the number of times that you, you're in a dilemma or you're at a crossroads, and you speak about it to someone and you've answered your own question oh, by the you. end of the by the end of the time the person's listened. I've got one more question. We talked about it previously, Joe. Would you like to tell us a story about your lovely lady Kate? About how that how that came to fruition and what happened? Well, I think mo yeah. All right. Well, me and Kate met in a bar in New York when I was passing through to go to LA for the first time. And uh and we hit it off and and then we went on a we had a second date while I was in New York and then uh and then I had to fly to LA the next day so we kind of thought you know I didn't we didn't expect we were going to see each other again but you know I kept calling her and texting and then a few days later she sort of said oh you know I've got quite a lot of friends in LA and um you know how would you feel about it if I if I sort of came out and I said, yeah, yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? And um, she came out, and we had a, we had a had a blast. And uh, then we uh, at the week I had castings that week, but I didn't have one on the Friday, and I didn't have one on the Monday. So I said, let's go away this weekend somewhere because you know LA's, you know, I don't want to stay in LA at the weekend. So I was sort of saying, you know, we could go up to Big Sur and get like a you know a cabin by the beach up there. And then she sort of said, oh, we could. Uh, go to Vegas and I'd never been to Vegas before but go to Vegas we did and uh stayed in New York New York and had a wild 48 hours in Vegas and then by the time we by the time we got back to LA we'd booked a flight to come back to London the next week with me uh and then sort of and what ensued was a long distance for five months but basically entailed me going to New York every month so then you know we got to a stage we were like what are we gonna do like how are we gonna make this work like you know you can't just come over here and you know not work and be twiddling your thumbs while I'm flipping burgers at Borough Market so we decided that we would come up with this play my sister's a writer so she wrote us this wonderful play called Partial Nudity which is about two strippers in a in the back room of a pub in Bolton getting ready for a hen do and a stag do. Uh, and it was this whole kind of power play between this very experienced uh, female stripper and this sort of Billy Big Bollocks first time stripper who thought he could do it. And it was a sort of power play and looked into you know what, what do a group of men want when they pay a woman to take her clothes off and what do a group of women want um, and kind of looking at those two different ideas. But anyway, it was, uh, it was up at the fringe and we got, we, we, we got there and we did the opening night and it was all a bit of a blur. And to our astonishment, we got these great reviews and the whole month was just a, a total kind of success and a, an incredible experience. Again, something that I'd always wanted to do. And just one of those things that I look back on and think, oh, we just did it we did what we wanted to do and that, that was a green light so we finished the play and then we went back over to for for her sister's wedding yeah that's when we went out to LA and it was just before Trump got elected and we went to see an immigration lawyer about getting me a 
an O1 visa, which is like a an, an actor's or a sports person's like a specialist visa. And he said, you know, they're being pretty tight on these at the moment. We could get you one, but it's going to cost this amount and it only lasts for three years and there's no guarantee that it would be renewed. But if you guys are in a, you know, a serious relationship, you should just get married. And uh, it was the last thing that we wanted to do in the most romantic possible way I could say that. Uh, because we knew that it would come with, you know, we'd been going out for 11 months at that point and it would entail us going to Vegas and getting married with no family. And we wanted to, something that we talk about quite a lot now, cause you know, we've been together nearly six years now and we're at a place where we kind of think, you know, if we hadn't got married then like now would be the time that we would be having the big wedding with all of our family and friends and stuff. But feels like we can't really do that now because we got married in Vegas and I obviously had to tell my family and uh, friends and stuff. And that, you know, I don't know, maybe we'll have another wedding, but there'll be plenty of people at the wedding saying, but where are you guys? Already no, you weren't. no, they weren't, mate. You'll be surprised. But like, Ash loves the wedding. Ash 100% the wedding. I'm there. But also going back to what we said previously about judgments, like I remember when you showed us a photo, because it was literally so, it was a stereotypical like hangover, like Vegas wedding. Like the photo, I remember you posted a photo in our WhatsApp group. And I remember texting a few of the boys and like, is this a joke or is this serious? I honestly didn't believe it. But also, your judgment when you see that is your mate Joe just married an American woman on Vegas for 11 months. And you're a bit like, is this for real? But like, that's that's you when you're using your judgment. But you should never judge people. To you. Like, and I've met Kate a few times, an unbelievable lady. Like, you both. But you, we obviously didn't know your circumstances then. We didn't know that you need to do that to stay in America. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. you, know, you don't see the full picture. And so that's the... We shouldn't make these rash judgments. But it's the best thing that I ever did. And uh, we haven't looked back. And um, yeah, then we lived in LA for two years. And and yeah, the rest is history. But that's how I met Kevin. I love that story. Great story. I'm glad you didn't get married the first time you went to Vegas. <laughs> so am I. That would have, that would have really... really I, was, I thought that's what you were going to say. <laughs> you woke up and you were married. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, what do we do now? <laughs> no, there, was a little more, there was a little more time spent together. The, the lots of the conversations that we've had today about acting are obviously like specific to acting but i think the most illuminating thing about it is loads of the things almost everything that we've touched on is is universal and everyone can relate to and and you know i just think that there's loads of really important conversations to be had so props to both of you for for doing this podcast and for getting those conversations started because the sooner that you start the conversation the more you realize that there are more people talking about it than you think, or there are more people who are going through the same thing as you are. And, uh, you know, that's incredibly important realization and, and one that is hugely sort of valuable, I think. Right. So last bit of business, triple threat round. I'll flip a coin, the loser's got to do a song, a story, a joke. It's between you, Factor This Week, and Joe, because I lost. No pressure, Joe, because this is, mate, this is this is technically an audition, yeah. if it's landing on you. Uh, you caught in the air, Joe. <clears throat> Fucking hell, I've dropped Going it. on the reel. Here we go. <laughs> Sorry, we'll go again. <laughs> Tails it is. It is actually heads up. Choice, but you song, the story, a joke, too fair. You've, uh-huh. you've given us some great stories, so... Well, this one kind of combines a little of all. I'm not going to sing, but a story that involved singing where I was the joke of the town. Uh, so I'm work. This is when I'm living in LA. I'm working, you know, 10, 12 hour days doing the set stuff. And I get an email through from my manager saying, they're casting Mamma Mia 2. And we've got you an audition for it to play the young Stellan Skarsgård. There are three scenes. You need to do a Swedish accent and you have to audition with the song Waterloo by ABBA. And I can't sing. So I replied to the assistant said, you know, kindly decline that. Um, Thanks very much. But, you know, I can't sing. Put my phone away, get on with my day's work. 
gets to 6 p.m. My manager calls me and says, Joe, you're going tomorrow. I said, Lena, I'm not, I, I, I can't go. He says, this is one of the biggest casting directors in LA. He's really excited to meet you. I've bigged you up. And I was like, well, you shouldn't have fucking bigged me up because I can't sing. And she was like, no, 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 no. We're not having a conversation about this. Learn the song, learn the lines. It's at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. So uh, I actually messaged Will Vickers, who was in our year, who's, um, who's Swedish family. And he very kindly voice noted me all of the lines. And I was feeling quite confident about the scenes. I thought, you know, I've got the Swedish accents down. It's good enough. But the song was a different matter. I just, I couldn't learn the line. I couldn't learn the words of the song. Anyway, I get to this audition, really nervous. I go in, I do the scenes. The casting director loves the scenes. I can see it in his eyes. And I'm just thinking, I'm about to just ruin everything. Like, how do I swerve this? There was no way to swerve it. So he says, all right, now we're going to do the song. And he gets his iPad out and he hits play on the iPad. And it's not a backing track. It's like a polyphonic ringtone. I don't know if you know how the song Waterloo goes, but it starts incredibly high. I thought it started like, at last, but it's not. It's like, at last, way too high for my voice. I get through it. And when I say I get through, I butchered it. But I did, you know, I started at the beginning, I finished at the end. He said, great, great, great. I don't mind if you can't sing, just throw the lines away. I want you to, I want to just see Stellan Skarsgård. I want you to really get into it and get into the groove with it. And I was like, let this be over. And I couldn't do it. I started the first line, I forgot the words. I did it again, I forgot the words. And in this moment, I'll always look back on this. I don't know what possessed me, but I thought that this was gonna be the moment, the story I'm gonna tell on the Graham Norton couch, after I've been cast in Mamma Mia 2. <laughs> I said to the casting director, do you know what? Give me 30 minutes. I'm gonna go and learn this song and I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna blow your socks off. Why, Joe? He says, yeah. And he looks at me like, you've got balls of steel to say that to me. Like I'm expecting big things. And I go out the casting office. It's boy, it's, it's summer in LA, so it's like 35 degrees. I'm wearing a blue t-shirt. My sweat patches are like dragons. I'm walking up and down Wilshire Boulevard, walking around the, the parking lot of this jack-in-the-box fast food joint with homeless people everywhere singing ABBA, just thinking this is a real fucking low point, and I don't know <laughs> how it's going to go. I go back in. I do the song. I get through it, but it's not good. And the guy sort of smiles at me and says, you know, thanks for your time. And I called my agent, I called my manager after, was absolutely furious. Anyway, she emails me the next day with the feedback from the casting director. And it says, Joe Layton is very sexy, but he can't sing. <laughs> to be fair, that's, that's not bad, that. that's, that's not bad. Yeah, you can't. Sexy, but I'm I'm seeing the acting went well. It's just the song. You can work on the you can work on the singing. You can't work on being sexy. Hey, that's so. true. That's yeah. true. Silver <laughs> no, lining. Superb. No thanks, Joe. I thought you were going to say something like you you got it. And guess what? I'm I was the guy. <laughs> I wish. And I just I just hadn't I just hadn't seen Mamma Mia too. I bet Mesh hasn't either. So it might have been a surprise that oh, you. Yeah. What a time. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, anyway. Joe. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Joe. Thanks a lot. Well, what a pleasure, lads. Thanks for having me on. Please follow and share us on Instagram and Twitter at AllChatsPod with a space.